Hey, I want to uh, dive in this morning and, and really uh, kind of just, I've got some ground I want to cover today, and we're just going to see how this goes. And uh, you may have noticed the service is a little bit different flow this morning, uh, and that's by intent. Uh, we just felt like the Lord really wanted to minister to us this morning that we would encounter his presence. How many of you feel or sense, man, I sense God's presence this morning in, uh, in a special way? What a way to start the year. And I've been meditating a lot actually on a verse that I, I, I just quoted to you out of Psalm 24. Uh, Psalm 24 is this amazing song that David wrote actually for uh, kind of like a coronation day uh, when he was setting up a new capital uh, in Shiloh. And, um, and if you're familiar with Sam 24, or Psalm 24, what's interesting, Sam is his Irish counterpart. <clears throat> what can I say? But Psalm 24 actually, uh, of course, comes after Psalm 23. Do you see that? Very good. 23, 24. I can do those things, right? And uh, Psalm 23, which of course, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, all this kind of stuff. Psalm 24 is this amazing psalm that David wrote as he was leading a parade into the, what would become the new capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. And, uh, and it's an amazing psalm. I encourage you to go read it. We're not going to take a long time to look at that today. But it starts out, as I've already said this morning, it starts out with the earth is the Lord's and everything thing in it. Stop and think about that for a minute. As you look upon the landscape of the year that's been, and you start to look at the year that's ahead, and of course, we all have kind of anticipation, expectation, also maybe some stress, some fear, some anxiety. We don't know what's coming this year, but what we do know is that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Which means that everything that you can think about, everything that you can look upon, everything that you can imagine in your head might or might not happen this year belongs to the Lord. Which ought to set the position and the trajectory of our heart this year. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And it's this amazing psalm. It says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord except him who has clean hands and a pure heart, right? And he, and he goes on in this beautiful song that's written, but there's a chorus that's written at the very end. And David, being the master songwriter that he was, repeats the lyrics of this, this, uh, this chorus in verse 7 and in verse 8. And he says this, open up the gates and let the king of glory come in which is the natural response if I truly believe that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, if the posture and the position of my heart isn't that it belongs to me, but it belongs to him, then my response is to open up the gates and let the king of glory come in. And sometimes as human beings, what we end up doing is we, we end up kind of living, and of course this is the story of the kingdom of this world, you know we talk about this all the time, where we place ourselves at the center and we think that it's our job to manage and control all of the affairs of life, that we're the ones that are in charge. But as we start out this year together, I believe that the word of the Lord to us, the word of the Lord to you, is that you and I would open up the gates of our heart, that you and I would open up the doors of our life, and we would say, Lord, I want the King of glory to come into every nook and cranny of my world and my life. I think that's what the Lord's asking of us this year. Open up the gates, open up the ancient doors, and let the King of glory come in. 
Now, what's so amazing about this passage of Scripture that's found in, or this song that's written in Psalm 24, is that, as I've already said, David wrote it as a song during his kind of coronation, or what some might look at as his second coronation. It's this, he's going into the city of Shiloh, and he's going to set up kind of a new capital city, a new place that he's going to rule from. And oftentimes, and you have to understand the context of this, this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and if you read what precedes 2 Samuel chapter 6, the background in the history is that Saul had been king, if you, and you know, this, you know Saul, Saul was always trying to kill David, right? He was always trying to chase after David, but David was the Lord's anointed, David was the one that God had called to be king, and so Saul uh, uh, chases after, he's chasing after David, and, and he's ruling as king, and Saul, early on, in his life tasted some victories. He got some success. And, and as a result of getting some of these successes going on in his life, he's like, he, he kind of falls into this rut of depending upon himself. Me, myself, and I, I can do it in my own strength. I can do it with my own power. I can do it with the military that I've had. And as a result, what happens is that the Ark of the Covenant gets left behind. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was what represented the presence of God amongst the people of God. And for 40 years, the Ark of the Covenant under the, under the, the, the rulership of King Saul goes forgotten, goes undesired, goes unpursued. And things got pretty bad. Well, Saul dies, and David eventually, after seven years, becomes king. And so David decides that, man, he's going to go after the Ark of the Covenant because he recognizes that the Ark of the Covenant is the representation. It's God's presence amongst God's people. And so he goes after the Ark of the Covenant, he gets it, and he starts bringing it back to this capital city on what might be described as kind of a coronation-type day, a new beginning for the southern kingdom of Judah. And what's so interesting about this story is that normally what would happen is that in a parade like this, a, a king would be um, in his royal robes with his crown, sitting on a throne, being carried by, uh, by some soldiers. He would be at the back of this parade. There would be this massive parade with the army and the musicians and all of the state officials. And there would be all of these songs and musicians that would be uh, written for that day. And they'd be declaring how great this king is. And, and he is conquered. And we're now moving into a new chapter and a new season. But that's not what happens in this incident. David has different ideas because David understands that he's not on the throne. God is the one that ought to be on the throne. God's presence is what ought to be central in the life of the nation. In fact, such an interesting read. Let's look, look at it. It says this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, right? That's the representation of God's presence. With shouting and with the sound of the horn. And the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought the Ark of the, covenant of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
the picture that's painted for us of how David brought the presence of God back into the center of the life of this community, of this nation. It was really a, a glorified tribe at that particular point in time. And David, rather than him being the focal point of this parade, rather than him being the one that's wearing the royal robes and wearing the crown and being carried on, the, on, the, on this, on this uh, platform on a throne by all of these uh, soldiers and musicians and officials, David's the one out in front of the entire parade. And here's what's, there's a couple of observations that we have to recognize what's going on here. Number one, David's not dressed in royal robes. David's basically dressed in a priest's underwear. A linen ephod. He's not even wearing the outer priestly garments. And he's dancing so unbecoming of a king. And he's out in front of this parade. And what's so interesting is that where the parade is going is not to a palace, which is where it would normally end up. It's going effectively to the city square. And David is pitching a tent to house the presence of God. But what's interesting about David is not only is he out there dancing, he writes this song that we've referenced. And the focal point of the song isn't himself, isn't the glory of the kingdom, it's the glory of the king being let into and taking its rightful place in the midst of the nation. And I so feel like as we're heading into 2023, that this is what God is calling, is, is asking of each one of us. Is the presence of God central in your life, in your existence? Is the presence of God, the personal, tangible, manifest presence of God, are you aware of, conscious of, making his presence with you the center of your existence as we move into this year together? Are we doing that as a church family? And I feel like as we head into this year, and man, it's been a battle just to get to this point, to stand on this stage this morning. You know, the Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And there's such resistance in my own life, my own kind of existence over the last couple of weeks, as I've been trying to just, Lord, is this what you're saying? Is this what you're saying to us? Is this what you're saying to our church congregation? That the enemy would try to resist that in every one of our lives. Are we going to make God's presence God's existence, the reality of who God is, central to our lives. Is he the foundation? Is he the focal point? Is he the one upon whom each one of our lives and the life of our church is built? We've got to make God central. We've got to have his presence. Even as we just experienced this morning, the reality of who he is, being personally present with us. He's not distant. He's not out there. He's not removed from us. He's active in us, through us, and amongst us. And I feel like what, what was spoken to David is what the Lord is speaking to you and to me. He's speaking to us as a church family as we move into this year together. Will we make God's presence that which distinguishes, that which marks, that which differentiates the people of God from all other nations is the presence of God with his people. And here's the beautiful promise. I, I've already referenced Moses who, who said, Lord, I, I'm not going to leave. I, I can't leave this spot unless your presence goes with us. 
And in Exodus 33, verse 14, God responds to Moses and he says, my presence will go with you. I'll see, the, I'll see this journey to the very end. And what a beautiful promise that God promises to be with us. In fact, this is so important to us as a church family that it's one of the four pursuits. If you remember back in February of last year, we kind of laid out a little bit of our direction and how would we describe who we are, who we feel God has called us to be. And one of our pursuits, in fact, I think it's really our chief pursuit, is actually written and stated this way, that we pursue the tangible and personal presence of God individually and together through a culture of prayer and worship rooted in God's word. And that's what we see taking place with King David. That King David doesn't just say, hey God, the ark is central, your presence is central. What marked them, how that was expressed in the life of their community was through a culture of prayer and worship. For 33 years, in fact, what's so interesting about this segment of Old Testament history is this is the only time, so far as I can tell, in the Old Testament where Every member of the nation of Judah, Israel, had access to the presence of God. Outside of this season, you had to go to a temple or a tabernacle, right? That only the high priest could actually go into the Holy of Holies. But David, he, he's not setting up that kind of a system. He recognizes that God desires to be personally present with his people. And so what David does is he sets up this tabernacle, this tent, this dwelling place in the midst of the people so that everybody can have access to God's presence. And for 33 years, there was a culture of prayer and of worship at the heart of Judah. What marked them, what marked the presence of God amidst, amongst them was prayer and worship. And what's so interesting is that we, we recognize that, that this is the mark that was upon them. But, but in, in the New Testament, when it talks about like what, what's God building, what's God doing, it refers back to this season Back to this tabernacle, back to this idea that God's presence is with all of his people, that everybody should have access to God's presence. And it should be marked by prayer and by worship. You know, David, I can only imagine David's first kind of cabinet meeting, you know. Presidents, when they come into power, they typically have a first act. There's something that they sign into law. It's some promise that they've made to constituents or it's something that uh, maybe lobbyists have got them to do. I don't know. But, um, but there's something that they want to do. The first thing that they want to do, they want to mark this occasion. They want to mark the start of their rule, their reign with something. And what is so interesting is that what David does is he marks it with prayer and worship. In fact, the first cabinet meeting that he would have had with his advisors and his leaders he, he, he maps out, he says, I want to have 24 worship leaders, I want to have 200, or, or, uh, 24 elders, 20, 288 uh, worship leaders, I want to have over 4,000 musicians. In fact, they estimate that it cost him about $30 million a year to run the tabernacle. And, and remember, this is in a season when it's tribal warfare, when it's you know, kind of dog-eat-dog, so to speak, you know, that they have to defend themselves. And what he's doing is taking resource out of military and putting it into prayer and into worship. He's making, a, he's making a statement, isn't he? And what he's saying is what is most important to this nation, what is most important, if I can say it, for us, is God's presence amongst us. 
And that presence being marked, our response to that being one of prayer and of worship. In fact, isn't that true of the life of Jesus as well? Isn't that true that the disciples, when they looked at Jesus, they, and remember, they spent three years with this guy who raised people from the dead, who walked on water, who like calmed storms, who fed 5,000 people plus with, with kind of just, you know, somebody's snackable lunch, right? Like they had done all of this stuff and the disciples didn't say, hey, Jesus, teach us to do that stuff. They recognized that what was core, what was central to David's life was the communion, the relationship, the intimacy that, that he had with his heavenly father. They understood that prayer was what was central. Prayer was what was core. Now, we live in a world that, that, that um, in fact, even this week, um, we've seen that prayer is something that's kind of significant in our culture, isn't it? In fact, what the statisticians and, the, and the, the people that report on all this stuff are telling us is that church attendance in America is doing this, prayer is doing this. And, and, and we saw that this week, right, with DeMar Hamlin, I don't know how many of you were watching Monday Night Football. Anybody, anybody? A few of us were watching Monday Night Football, right? And you saw that hit, and you see this guy stumble back, and all of a sudden, man, let's pray. Everybody's got to pray, right? In fact, I don't know if you saw the clip on ESPN. I thought it was powerful. Did you guys see the clip on social media or on ESPN where the guy goes, hey, everybody's talking about prayer. We're going to stop, and we're going to pray right now, you know? And I'm thinking, that's amazing. Now, oftentimes, we'll do that in a moment because it seems like the right response but we probably won't come back and go, you know what? That guy was resuscitated twice, once on the field and once when he got to the hospital. He's now breathing on his own. We won't, probably won't double back and go, prayer works. Right? We'll probably go, hey, medical, right? Those paramedics. And thank God for all of those things, right? They all play a part in it. My point is simply this. If we're not careful, we can treat prayer a little bit like a magic wand, or the appropriate response, or the reaction to a really difficult situation. But what we learn from the life of Jesus, what we learn from the life of David and the kingdom of Judah, is that prayer is not a reaction to a bad circumstance, though it can be. Prayer is a response to a God who wants to be personally present with his people. It's the natural response. In fact, somebody actually said it this way, prayer is the native language of human beings. Because we recognize that God wants to be present with us. And he's inviting us to be present with him. Prayer is our natural response. And this is exactly what we learned from the life of Jesus. Because prayer was Jesus' response. Let's stop for a minute and think about that. Jesus, who is the son of God, his response isn't, I got this. No, his response was, I am a human being, fully human, fully God. Bible actually tells us this, full of the Spirit of God, and he's constantly withdrawing. He's constantly removing himself from the buzz and the craziness of life to spend time, intimacy, communion with his heavenly Father. I don't know about you, but I know this. I'm not better than Jesus. Anybody? Anybody? And if Jesus ordered his life around prayer, maybe we should. Maybe that's what God's calling us to. That what we recognize in the Old Testament is that, and in fact, even in the creation before sin entered the world, it says that Adam and Eve 
would meet with God in the cool of the evening. They communed. There was intimacy. There was conversation that was taking place with their heavenly father. And you see it throughout the Old Testament. You see it throughout the New Testament. Prayer needs to be something that is central, core, and foundational to our life. Not because of some discipline, but because of the invitation to intimacy, the invitation to communion with God who is real and is present with us and wants us to be present with him. And so the question is, well, where do we start? Like, I get, I get Gareth, that, you know, you made the case. Okay, care. prayer is central. And, and to have a heart of prayer, I see it in David and Jesus and all of these other characters, but what is prayer? And I want to suggest to you that, that prayer is this. Prayer is being consciously present with God who is continuously present with us. Let me read that again, because I know that's a mouthful. Prayer is being consciously pre uh, present with God. In other words, I'm aware that God is real. I'm aware that God wants me to be present with him. I'm aware that God is present with me. He's not kind of packed off in some space in heaven and, and maybe someday I'll get to experience him. Maybe someday I'll experience him. No, no, no. You experienced him this morning because he is real. You experienced him this morning because his heart's desire is to be present with us. But are we conscious of that? Are we aware of that? Or is that, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll throw up a prayer on my way to work. Lord, let all the lights be green. <laughs> and here's what's so amazing. God even loves that interaction. Because you're talking with him, you're communicating with him, you're interacting with him. But I want to push us this morning not to be unconscious or not to be unaware and not just to kind of throw up a few prayers. No, no, no. I want us this morning to be present, to be conscious, to be aware of God's presence when we talk to him, when we commune with him, when we spend time with him. Why? Because he is con continuously, constantly, always present with us. And so prayer is this idea that we're consciously present with God who is continuously present with us. Prayer is about communion. It's about intimacy. And so the, the question is, well, how do we be consciously present? And I want to leave you with really three very simple thoughts this morning. How do we be consciously present with God? And I think the first thing is this. We have to keep prayer simple. Can I be honest? And I'm a pastor. I've been doing this for like 20 odd years. And I need to apologize because sometimes pastors make things really complicated. I don't know if it's to make us feel smarter or feel better or, you know, yes, look at me, whatever. But the Bible is notorious for keeping things pretty simple while we in the church can sometimes complicate things. And sometimes we do that, don't we? Like we complicate what prayer is actually supposed to be. Like, I, I, I gotta, like if you've ever tried to teach your kids how to pray, you know, one of the reasons why they don't want to pray is they go, I don't know how to pray. Well, you know how to talk. You know how to have a conversation. Now, we can laugh at our kids, but you know what? The reality is that many of us in the room do the exact same thing, don't we? Because we've seen somebody that we think is spiritual, and they pray with like an English accent. <laughs> oh, Lord, we thank thee for thou bountiful mercies. 
We thank you for the joy. You know, and it's like, it just sounds spiritual. It's like somebody with an English accent, they tend to be better salespeople because they just sound smarter. It's like Nikki Pooley, she's on our staff. She's amazing. She's super smart, right? She's super smart anyway, and then she has an English accent on top of it. But sometimes what we do is we go, oh, that person's really, that's how we're supposed to pray. And then you start working on your English accent, and you realize, I can't do it. We overcomplicate what prayer is supposed to be. Prayer is a conversation. Like, think about this. God meets with Adam and Eve in the garden before there's any sin, before there's any suffering, before, like, what do they talk to him about? Like, God, why did you create the duckbill platypus? That thing looks hilarious. Like, what were you thinking when you did that? Like, it was like, get a duck, get a beaver, I don't know, whatever, put it all together. Like, like what were you thinking? But the point that I'm simply trying to make is that God, we overcomplicate prayer. God didn't overcomplicate prayer. God said, I'm present with you. I delight in you and I want you to delight in me. I want you to enjoy me. I just want you to talk to me. Talk to me about your delights. Talk to me about your fears. Talk to me about your concerns. Talk to me about why you love me, what you think about me. Just talk to me. In fact, Jesus actually warned his disciples, which means he warned you and I about overcomplicating prayer. Look at this in Matthew, five, or Matthew 6, 5 and 8, and when, uh, 5 through 8. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for 15 minutes of fame. Do you think God sits in the box seats like this is some sort of performance, right? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place. So that, um, so that you won't be tempted to role play before God, just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage it. The focus will shift from you to God. That's a really key statement because we so often default to the focus being us. Lord, I need, I need, I want, can you help? Will you do this? Will you do that? And by the way, the Lord's not bothered by it because he, he actually talks about that kind of persistence in our prayer. But God wants you to appear before him, to sit before him, to be, find a place where you can just be simply honest and open before your heavenly father. And he goes on, and you will begin to sense his grace. And the world uh, full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant, they're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques and getting what you want from God. Don't fall into that nonsense. <laughs> I love Jesus, don't you? Um, just, guys, don't be an idiot. Don't fall into that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With, God, with a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply. And I think that's what God wants, us, wants from us. God wants us just to pray simply, like just to be open, to be honest with us. Now, what happens after that is that Jesus then sits down with his disciples because they say, hey, will you teach us to pray? And Jesus gives them what we now know as the Lord's Prayer, which is super interesting because so often we can turn that and make it about us. But it's the Lord's Prayer. And in the original language, there were just 31 words to the Lord's Prayer, in fact, there's a, a bishop who says that the Lord's Prayer is simple enough for a child to recite, but profound enough that I could spend the rest of my human life thinking about that. And, and simply, God is wanting you and I to interact with him. So he wants us to keep it simple. And if I could say it this way, pray what you got. Just pray what you got. Pray openly, pray honestly. 
Just say, Lord, I want to have a conversation. And look, if you go back to that verse in Matthew chapter 6, it says, then you'll begin to sense his grace. Why? Because he wants to be with you way more than you want to be with him. So number one, how do we cultivate this kind of idea of consciously present with God? Can we just be honest? Keep it simple. Number one. Number two is keep it real. Keep it real. Uh, do you know that God's not intimidated by your emotions? God's not intimidated by your honesty. God's not so small that you don't have something that, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to handle this? No, no, God's way bigger than all of that. And God's not intimidated by it. God's not offended by it. In fact, we'll take a look at that in a moment. In fact, there's actually this story that Jesus recites, and it's a story, a surprising story. It's found in Luke chapter 18. There's two men arriving at the temple, and one of them is like this Pharisee. You know, he's like the religious elite. He probably speaks with an English accent, or at least prays with an English accent, right? You understand that? He probably has an American accent, but only prays with an English accent. And there he is standing before God, hands raised, you know, he's done all of the religious check the boxes and he's tithed and he's given and he's done all of these kinds of things and he's, you know, he's praying this elaborate prayer to the Lord. And then it says that there was a tax collector. Now, a tax collector is like the most hated man in, in the Israelite culture. And he's standing before God. He won't even look up to heaven. And he's just kind of muttering this phrase, God, would you have mercy on me as a sinner? God, Jesus concludes the story and he says, he tells the listening crowd, who do you think stood justified before God? Is it the religious person that prays with the English accent? Or is it the tax collector who's not even, can't even make eye contact, just muttering out, Lord, would you have mercy? And he says, it's that one that left justified. Why? Because he was real with his need. He was real in his intimacy and his communication with God. Thomas Merton said this, God is far too real to be met anywhere other than reality. In other words, he wants you to be real with him. Now, that might be, maybe if you grew up in religious circles, and I know that, you know, we reverence Jesus, or we reverence the Lord, we, we fear the Lord, we respect the Lord, and we do all of those things. But, but God is a father who wants to hear from you. In fact, there's this verse. Look at this verse. It's found in Psalm 55, verse 17. This might totally surprise you. Evening and morning and at noon, so three times a day, I will complain and moan and he will hear my voice. Some of you are like, I wish my husband would do that. I wish my wife would do that. Your God and your father in heaven he listens. And God's not intimidated by our complaints. God's not intimidated by our honesty, by our vulnerability, by our transparency. In fact, God welcomes it. God loves it because what it's saying is, I want to be intimate with you. I really believe that you are God, that you exist, that you hear me, and that you'll actually intervene. You'll actually work in and through my life. Look throughout the Old Testament, you see this. Jacob wrestled with God all night. Moses whined to God about the very people that God had called him to lead. Jeremiah ranted to God, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived by you. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everybody mocks me. And here's what's so amazing about these prayers that were prayed. They aren't redacted from Scripture. God wants you to see it in his word. Why? Because he wants you to be real, to be honest, to be vulnerable, to be transparent with him. 
C.S. Lewis, he was writing some letters to a guy by the name of Malcolm, and, and he said this, what, see, what seem our worst prayers may really be in God's eyes our best. Those, I mean, which are least supported by devotional feelings. For these may come from a deeper level than feeling. Sometimes seems to speak to us most, some, God sometimes seems to speak to us most intimately when he catches us, as it were, off our guard. And I'll never remember, I'll never forget this. I was in New York and, and the Lord had really spoken to us very, very clearly, clearly after nine years of being there, or about eight years of being there. The Lord had spoken to us really clearly and said that your time in New York is done. It's coming to a close. And, and so, you know, either being a fool or either being full of faith, you know, I sat down with a team that I worked with and I, I laid it all out. And I said, this is what I feel the Lord is saying to us. And for about seven months, we went into this season, this journey of God, where is the next door? Where are you leading us? What does this mean? Like, what, what do you have in store for us? Like, we obeyed you. You told us to follow you like Abraham followed you, you know? And, and, and we've done that. Why won't you show us the next door? Why won't you show us where you're leading us and guiding us? And I remember sitting in our, um, our dining room, which had the most hideous wallpaper that we never replaced. We blessed the next owners with that. But I remember sitting at the dining room table and I had my Bible open and my journal open and, and, and I'm just on the, just my face on the table, crying out to God, literally crying tears, dropping onto my, and I used to write with a fountain pen back then because I thought it was really cool, you know, and it's like, you know, blotches of my tears kind of marking and staining my journal. And it's like, where are you, God? I stepped out in obedience, you told us that the season was done and we're going to move into the next season. Why won't you open up the next door? And not once did the Lord rebuke me. I felt God's presence. I felt God's grace. I felt God carrying me through the season even though I didn't know what was next. God's honored by the realness, the honesty, the vulnerability, the transparency of our prayers. He's not intimidated by it. So keep it simple. Keep it real, recognizing that the Spirit helps us actually in our weakness. And then the last thing is this, keep it going. It says this in Luke 18, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Always pray and not give up. Has anyone ever got discouraged praying? You ever prayed for something and it either took a really long time. In fact, some of you, maybe even in this room, continue to pray for something and you haven't seen the answer to that prayer. And God says, keep praying. It's a little bit, maybe, maybe this would be a good picture for you. And I'm not saying that this, you know, sometimes the Lord answers yes. Sometimes the Lord answers no. Sometimes the Lord answers not yet. I want you to keep praying. And the reason why is because so often if we see prayer as like we treat, we treat God like Santa Claus, you know, you know what you do with Santa Claus? You write him a list and you tell him what you want and he just delivers it. And if he doesn't deliver it, I'm just going to be mad for the next year. And sometimes we can treat God that way. We can say, God, uh, you're Santa Claus. Here's my list. Can you just deliver and that's not what prayer is. Prayer is communion. It's intimacy. It's me giving myself to him. It's me understanding him, getting to know him better. And, and so sometimes, how many of you know Father Knows Best, right? Not Leave It to Beaver or what, what show was that? I don't know what that was. What show was that? Somebody shout it out. I can't hear. Somebody, just one person shout it real loud. 
it is. Carl, Father Knows Best. It was actually called Father Knows Best. Oh. See? Pastors always make it more complicated than it really is. Your Heavenly Father Knows Best. And it's a little bit like, like, I don't know why persistence in prayer, I don't know why there's all these parables that Jesus leaves us with that, man, you gotta keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. And it's almost like there's a swamp out in front of you and you, you know, it's like, I'm throwing another rock in, I'm throwing another rock in, and you just see that rock just sink. But you know that there's a day, in fact, the Bible actually in Revelation says that Jesus collects those prayers like incense. And there's a day when he responds, he pours it out upon us. And it's like one day you're going to throw a rock into that swamp and all of a sudden you're going to see it. All of a sudden you're going to see there's a way forward. Oh my gosh, God seems to be moving. Why did it take so long? I have no idea. When we first moved to New York in 2007, we bought a house ridiculous. We should never have bought a house because we bought the house. Uh, it was overpriced. Uh, we paid more for the house than we probably should have paid for it. And I was like, we're going to turn, we're going to flip this house. You know, we're going to do the Oregonian thing. We're going to do an interest only loan. We're going to flip. We bought the house the week the market crashed. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> There's nothing like getting the keys to a new house and going, I made a mistake. How quickly can I sell this? Can I tell you for 18 months, I prayed and I prayed and I cried, and I said, Lord, have mercy on me. I've made a mistake. I even reached the point, Lord, where I said, Lord, if I lose everything, but I have my family, Lord, I'm good. We'll move forward. We'll move forward. Keep on praying. Keep on praying. Keep on praying. It's funny, during that season, the Lord would say, hey, I want you to go work on the side yard. It looks like a sand pit. I want you to actually bring some topsoil in and plant some grass. I'm like, okay, Lord, I'll do it. Half the year it snows there. You're only going to see it half the year. But one day I was up in Utica, it's about 90 miles away, and this lady, um, the praying grandmas, were praying in the lobby of the church, and I'm walking out to do the 90-mile drive back to Albany, and you know what I'm going to pray about, because I've prayed about it for 18 months. Lord, would you sell the house, sell the house. I made a mistake, I repent, I'm sorry, I did it all. And, and she pulls me aside and she goes, um, she's so funny. She goes, son, we just want to pray for you real quick. She had no clue what was going on in my life. Just the praying grandmas in the lobby of our church. And uh, she just begins to pray for me. And she says, you've been praying for something for like well over a year. And the Lord's going to take care of it the next week. <laughs> really? And you know, me being a man of faith, you know what my response was. Now, I mean, I never said it out loud. I said it internally. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. That was Tuesday. By Thursday, a realtor showed up at our door, unannounced, knocks on the door. For 18 months, I had been trying to sell this house. My daughter, my youngest daughter, had uh, um, appendicitis and but somebody was coming to look at it, pack up the kids, get them out, we're gonna sell the house. I'd done everything I knew to do in my own strength. But on a Thursday afternoon, a realtor shows up at our house unannounced. Hey, I know this is really strange, but would you mind if I took a look at your house? I have a buyer in California and I think this is the perfect house for them. She comes in, she looks at the house and it's like a bomb hit it. Because we hadn't prepared. By Friday, we had a contract. 
don't stop praying. Was it my prayers? Was it, I don't know. I don't know how it works. All I know is that my heart was aligned and said, Lord, I'm just going to keep seeking you. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep laying this out before you because you're the God that truly answers prayer. And so as we step into this season, the invitation of the Lord is to say, I'm present with you. Are you conscious? Are you aware of my presence with you? Well, I hope today you are. Well, what's the response? Well, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to find a space. It might just be 15 minutes tomorrow. I'm going to make my coffee. I'm going to sit in a dark room in my favorite chair. And I'm just going to be keep it simple. I'm going to keep it real. And you know what? I'm going to keep this going. And I guarantee you, not because of my words, though I could from my own experience, and many people in this room could from their own experience attest to this very fact, but because of the words of Jesus, if you will do it, you'll experience his grace. He shows up because he's more real than you and I are. He's more desirous of being present with you than we are even with him. But will you slow down enough? Will you stop the craziness? Will you stop the madness? These cycles of just, I gotta go, here we go, another year. Gotta just keep running the hamster wheel. No, 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 I'm stepping off. And I'm not going to be a Saul who lives life in my own strength. No, I'm going to be a David that, that centers my life, my existence around the very presence of God. I'm going to be consciously present with God who is continuously present with me. I'm going to do it simply. I'm going to do it honestly, in reality. And I'm not going to stop. We're just going to see where this train takes us. And I guarantee you his presence will show up. How can I guarantee that? Well, first and foremost, God said it. But number two, Jesus tells us that God is faithful to us. And then he demonstrates it. He demonstrated it on the cross, but before he went to the cross, he says, I'm instituting a meal that every single time you take this meal, which for us is on a weekly basis, it's there to remind you of my faithfulness to you, of my desire to want to be with you. And you thought it was just a piece of cracker and a little piece of juice that we memorialize something that Jesus did. No, no, no. It's a, a sacrament. It's a grace. It's a reminder. It's an encounter with a God who wants to be with you. And the question is, will you be with him? And so I'm going to invite the ushers to come. They can start distributing communion. And after you've gotten communion, what I want you to do is hold it in your hand. And then I want you just to close your eyes, bow your head, and be conscious be aware of God who is present with you. The Bible tells us that we're to not take communion flippantly or lightly or just as some sort of routine. We're to actually look at our own hearts. In fact, it's an opportunity to evaluate our own relationship, our own intimacy, our own communion with our Heavenly Father. 
And so now's the time to do some business. Now is actually the time to respond. Now is actually the time to say, Lord, as I start this year, I want that. I want to be aware. I want to be present. I want to be with you as you are with me. And here's what's so beautiful. The Lord speaks to us and he says, hey, here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to adjust that. I want you to set your alarm clock. Maybe for you, it's a little bit earlier in the morning. Maybe it's you get up early because you have to go to work and you're saying, well, I'm going to carve out some time in the evening or I'm going to carve out some time during lunch. I'm going to sit in my car and I'm just going to read God's word. I'm going to simply pray, be open and honest. And I'm, going to just, I'm just going to start something. I'm not trying to fix everything. I'm not trying to make these big changes. I'm just going to make some simple changes to be consciously present with God who is continuously present with us. So Jesus, here we are in this place, in this place, at this moment in time. And you who are eternal, you who has no beginning and no end, you're showing up in this moment you stepped into this moment to be with us. And so, Lord, make us aware. Make us conscious of your presence with us. And, Lord, we remember what has made all of that possible is the sacrifice of Jesus. His broken body, his shed blood created a new covenant to be honest, a covenant that you fulfilled both sides, both ends of the bargain, and then you give it to us. And Lord, all you ask us to do is respond to the invitation to receive that which you give us. And so Lord, as we eat and drink these elements together as a family, we do so not just remembering, but encountering your presence with us. 